0: Welcome to the Midlife Crisis Cards Podcast with your host, Darren Darren. Herman. This podcast explores the world of sports cards from a variety of angles. Being a hobbyist collector for over 30 years, a professional software investor and angel investor in and around the card space, and a proud father who is raising children who collect and appreciate sports cards. If you want to learn more about Midlife Crisis Cards, head over to midlifecrisiscards.com where you can read his journey to card collecting his history and find some awesome individual cards to purchase from his personal collection or check out our brand new product, the cardboard box, a personalized and hand selected box of cards that arrive at your front door on the midlife crisis cards podcast. We explore the convergence of Darren's worlds in the sports card industry, where hobby meets business without further ado. Please meet our host, Darren Herman, a.k.a. at Midlife Crisis Cards on Instagram and dherman76 on Twitter.
1: I was going to hold this interview for a couple of weeks, but this one is just too good. I've got Brian Gray, the CEO of Leaf Trading Cards, and there's only four or five major card manufacturers in the market. And there's just so much going on today with the trading card space that it's time to release this interview. Uh, If you are curious about what a trading card manufacturer does, if you're curious on why you open a pack of cards and not everything grades perfect tens, if you're just have any curiosity around the sports card space specifically to the cards the autographs, the memorabilia on the cards, this interview is super insightful. Brian Gray is awesome. He was very forthcoming. He, 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 he spoke to everything, and I'm excited to share this interview with you. So without further ado, here's the Midlife Crisis Cards podcast. All right, we are live. Brian, I've got Brian Gray from Leaf Trading Cards with us today here on the Midlife Crisis Cards Podcast. Brian, how you doing today?
2: Doing good. How about
1: you, my friend? Uh, you know, I'm I'm doing okay. It's Friday. We're filming this on a Friday. It's the end of the day. I'm I'm happy because I just see a nice weekend ahead. So I'm excited.
2: You know, we're safe in a COVID world, so that means we're winning.
1: <laughs> that absolutely, Amen, Amen. So you got an envious job. So this is like. I've got a lot of podcast guests and stuff. And, but this is like a cool one. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like there's like four, five or six people in the world that could say at scale, I'm a card manufacturer and you're one of them. And, you know, for those that are unfamiliar, Leaf makes trading cards, sports cards, uh, other types of cards. And Brian's behind this. And, you know how'd you get into this? Like every entrepreneur has got a story. Like what's the, what's the story of you and Leaf and how'd you get into this whole space?
2: I'll give you the most abbreviated version possible with my long-winded nature. Um, I started collecting cards in the 1980s. Um, you know, I was, I'm only 48, so I'm relatively young in this business. Yeah. And, um, so I started collecting cards in my early teens like 13-ish like so 1986 probably is my first year and then i realized pretty quickly that the market was completely inefficient you could buy a case of cards for 250 at sam's open it sort it into order and sell all the cards for 800. and it it shouldn't work like that like (laughs) every card sold for beckett and beckett added up to a thousand dollars a case and so it was so the market was completely inefficient And I could not believe that other people had not figured out. All you have to do is open the packs, spend an hour sorting the case, and you make five hundred dollars.
1: You were how old when you realized that?
2: uh, Probably fourteen. Fourteen. I did my first show at uh, New Year's Eve, nineteen New Year's Day, nineteen eighty-eight, was my first show. And so, nineteen eighty-seven, Donors, I bought a bunch of cases and opened them. I started with one case, opened it, sold all the cards, took that money, and bought three cases, opened it sold all the cars, took that money in about 12 cases. And suddenly I was one of those kids in the newspaper that like had found this way to make a bunch of money as a high school kid. And so, you know, I was very lucky. And doing a the- job
1: that they love.
2: Yeah, well, I was a high school kid, so I should have been. It's not like you're, been like
1: you're you're carrying like you know yeah, like furniture around houses or well, digging. like at the time, I
2: will say I was a DJ at a roller skating rink. That was like you're my life. Part-time. You're living the that life. Was part-time high school job, but but you know, so I started doing cards. I was doing a show every weekend, and it was so easy. I mean, it was the easiest money ever, which is why we had the crash. In 1989, 1990, with overproduction, because no market remains inefficient forever, as we know, yep. and the market became more efficient, and people realized that back then there were no hard assets in the cards. Hardly there were hardly any autographs. I mean, only Upper Deck really had autographs from 1990 with Red Jeep and uh, I think whatever it was Nolan or whoever it was. So I mean, there were, or Hank Aaron, whatever. So there were very few autographs. So because there were no input, no no hard cost inputs, it was just paper they could literally let the presses run at almost no cost. So yep. the cost to make a 1989 tops case, once you Marginal. got the case number or whatever, was $40. And that was mainly because of the gum. I mean, it was $40 a case and they were selling it for 250. So there's never any incentive to stop. Whereas now the hard cost in products are much higher. We know where that's gone. So I became a car dealer like that, started doing shows every weekend. Um, in 1990, I took on, while I was in college, I just started college and I took on a part-time role with ProSet. So I was at Proset for yep. I was at Proset for almost a year, and um, so I did that. Got some and, and it got to see a little bit behind the scenes, kind of how manufacturing should not be done, because obviously they had no restraint, no um, no self control, like we talked about. Just because you can print a case of cards for forty dollars doesn't mean you should. And Lud did not know that. But I worked there for a very short time, maybe a year, and then I went to work for a company called Edgeman. We were a mail order and distributor. Early on, like in 1991, back before distribution was built out like this. And we did everything. And see, that's the beauty of, and the reason I tell all these little pieces, that really seems so old and not significant, is I'm the only owner of a card company that's done everything. So I was a collector, a show dealer. I had a distribution company. Then we started, then we had retail stores we opened. You and understand we saw the our first, full cycle. We sold our, our first store for a million dollars in 2001 or 1999. We sold a store for a million dollars. You know, and then we became a distributor again with Edgeman. You know, we let that build up again. Yeah. And I sold Edgeman, started making cards under the Razor brand for two years where we did signed all the baseball draft pick exclusive. So, like, through this food chain, because I'd done everything, my dream was always to make cards. But it seemed unattainable. It seemed like something just couldn't be done. But because of Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! And the money we made during Pokemon uh, and Yu-Gi-Oh! We were able to, during Edgeman, I was able to build a war chest that equipped me to take on the challenge of manufacturing, and it was a challenge. I spent three million dollars on baseball rookies exclusive in 2008, so hmm. that war chest doesn't come from you know thin air. So again, that's I, I got to start my dream then, but I never could scale that because the brand recognition was not significant. I had not committed 1,000% to whatever it takes to grow this thing into something. Yep. And then the Leaf name came available in late 2009 a mistake by one of my competitors when they bought the company they bought you know when Donruss got sold they didn't need the leaf name anymore yes. so that was pretty good timing so leaf existed
1: way back when oh, it's been around I since came 1948.
2: it was yes. owned by yes. mills it's been owned by all kinds of people um and if there was a, a Finnish candy company named hudamaki Oy, or a Finnish company and they were renting the name to Donruss. donors is paying to rent the name so when mm-hmm. panini bought Donruss, they didn't want to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to rent the name anymore. So they were like, oh, we'll let it go and maybe we'll get it cheap or something. Well, then I saw that and I was like, I'll just offer to buy the name. So I Love bought it. the name. Well, buying the name I bought with it a heritage and a history that would have taken me 25, 30, 40 years to build a brand recognition that when you see the cards, you think of Frank Thomas, 1990 Leaf automatically. Yes, yes. And that was So that was like the big step. That's when it was like, okay, Now people are gonna see that we're not jacking around just making stuff for fun, like an old hustler that just kinda wants to make cards now. We're committed to the category. And that's when we started ramping up what we were doing. And again, we just, it's been an incredible run since then. You know, it's been, the history is all, it's all out there now. I love that. I I love that story. It just equips us to best serve every element of the food chain. I know what the distributors need, I know what the stores need, I know what the hobbyist needs. You know, I know what players, if I'm going to work with players, I know those relationships because I worked with them doing autograph deals before I was a manufacturer. So, yeah. I mean, all the pieces have led us to where we're at. But when the jigsaw comes together, I've got a huge advantage on the guys at, you know, Tops and Upper Deck who may not be as hobby focused. You know, they are business people yeah. taking on the hobby and not right. hobby people. And, and there's a lot of bad hobby businessmen because they're hobbyists. But oh, yeah. I actually well, we're going to talk about that. We're, we're going to go right into so, that, which is... So it all kind of worked out for me. It's a, it's a Cinderella story, and now we're at a size and a, and a profitability level where you know, we're getting a lot of attention, so it's exciting.
1: Well, hold off on that profitability and size for a second, but I'm <laughs> curious. So I, I not only know you as the CEO of Leaf, but you're, you're quite around many of the hobbyist circles as quite the collector as well. No well, I say collector
2: for cards at this stage. I would say investor because yeah. I see value here. I mean, this is an alt investment. I have debates with people all the time that cards are an investment. And, and the only way they can win the argument with me is that they say they're a speculation. And then I'll say, yep. okay, I'll, I'll give you they're a speculation. But honestly, if you're buying any stock at the multiples today, you're a speculator. There's very little <laughs> value anymore. If you're buying anything besides Clorox or some garbage, you know, the trades, at yep. earnings, you're certainly not, you're certainly a speculator. So I think that's it. So for me, I'm an investor more, have a large portfolio, but besides that, I'm the one guy that tells people what I believe in before I buy it. Because I, what I don't like is guys who buy up all of a card and then tout it. I yeah. do not like that. I'm not no. a tout. I don't sell my advice on a one nine hundred. I could i think people come to me and say, we can monetize this huge by selling a service, basically selling a service where I tell people what to buy. And I'm like, I'd rather just put it on Twitter and say in 30 minutes, I'm about to buy every damn Marino PSA eight that's under hundred bucks. And if you want to come along for the ride, you can grab the ones that are 80 and I'll buy the ones that are 85, 90, 95. You know, So if you come along with the ride for me, you'll buy the same time I'm buying. I never buy my position first. I may go back and add to a position, like I tell everyone, my number one card is Ronald Acuna tops up days. You know, so I may recommend that six months from now, and I already have a position. But I told you when I first bought the position that I believed in it. So that's where I'm different than most guys is I'm not a town. I'm not. So, talent, so you're living you know? the life of a CEO
1: of a card company, and you're an investor in the overall space. Do you is, ever think it. about? But do you ever think about I'm getting burnt out? Like it, or is there ever really such thing as too many out.
2: cards for you? i got to be honest, I was born for this. and it, I, I it, can hear I think, it. I mean, your, I think your I could enthusiasm have lot, is amazing. I think I could have made a lot more money in life if I'd gone the corporate route. Because I like to think I'm a visionary type person who really could have had some great success in the corporate category. But yeah. I'll be honest, I was always enamored with the idea that I was in a business where people are not businessmen.
0: Yeah.
2: Where they're just hobbyists who open businesses. And when you can be an educated shark in waters that are full of chud, I mean... You, 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 you Chub or whatever you call that, the the dead fish floating around, that's what it feels like or felt like back then. And I saw an opportunity to be one of the bigger fish in a a smaller pond versus a small fish in a big pond. And and I love that from the beginning. I was made for this. And this will be where I go. This will be the end of my run probably. I'll be doing trading cards in some capacity. And um, and I love it. So I'll never get tired of this. You know, I've had periods of burnout when business wasn't good 20 years ago. But you know we've had such a strong bull run. It's hard not to be excited about work every day.
1: Absolutely. So that's a great transition point. That's a, that's a great point where we'll sort of move into sort of the business of you know leaf and 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 leaf or just the general category of you know card manufacturer. So can you for the for the listeners define what a card manufacturer actually does? Like sure. What is that sure. Business? I mean.
2: Our our core business is we manufacture trading cards. Um, Our job is to acquire the necessary intellectual property slash assets. Now, when we make trading cards, in the old days, trading cards were pieces of paper with guys' pictures on it. It was very simple. Now, cards incorporate elements of material worn by the players, whether it be game used or player worn. It could include autographs. It could include hair from, you know, Richard Nixon's hair could be in a card. It could be anything. And so in the process, our evolution is to find ways that the old time card collector can be fascinated, captivated and keep this fresh for him. Because if we had just kept making plain paper, I do believe collectors would have burned out many years ago. I think it's this evolution to new ways of presenting trading cards, whether it's all the things I just described or taking George Washington's autograph, cutting it up and putting it in a card which is mm-hmm. so funny because you'd want the whole document Washington signed. But if yeah. you collect cards, you want that as a card. So that's our job, and that's what our goal is as a manufacturer, it goes for all of us, is to keep this fresh and interesting and to continue to captivate the imagination of the collectors who've invested a lot of time, energy, and money into making this something that's important or, or recognizing that it's something that's important to them.
1: Awesome, I love that definition. So as you are a card manufacturer, like how do you sit back and say what sports you should concentrate on?
2: Well, we, we look at the marketplace and we see that there's opportunities in certain categories. For us, um, two of our big categories are baseball and football draft picks. And we look at those markets and we say, with the assets that are available to us, can we make something that's compelling? that's necessary in the marketplace. Be, and, and, and if there's a reason for us to make it, then we'll make it. The thing is in draft picks, um, in baseball and football, there's always been a stigma around it that the companies who made draft pick cards made garbage. Hmm. And, and I don't think press pass was garbage, but like it was all paper. Sage still is. You know, um, Just Minors, Scott Jordan, who used to own Just Minors, he made minor league baseball, he works for me. This stuff was just paper. There was really no taking it up to this ultra premium level. Yep. So what we did is we said, what if we took draft pick products and presented them in the high quality format that the licensors are using for Major League Baseball cards, which is how we use our metal, which some people call Chrome, and some of the technologies. We brought all those things in a draft. So there was a place. There was a need for us. We needed to make those products because the draft pick products were not compelling except for the one month before professional cards came out. But we wanted to give them a life. And if you collect the University of Alabama football players, now you can get something that's got life. It's in a jersey you recognize. It's high quality. It's something you want to own beyond that first four weeks before there's any other cards to collect. Right. Same thing right. in hockey. Upper Deck has an exclusive. The market needs a competitor. They need to have an option, not just so they have something else they can choose to collect, but to force the licensor to provide value, quality and it just holds them accountable. The market needs us. We can make money there, yes, but it needs us in the marketplace. So we're looking for places the market needs us. Right now, basketball draft, we don't think it needs us. Panini's doing an exceptional job of delivering draft pick cards that I think are high quality, you know, technically advanced. I don't mm-hmm. think there's a place where we're needed there. So we're gonna focus our attention on the places we're needed. And I think that's our goal when we look at these things, whether it's this or even going out of sports to pop culture, our pop century product. No one makes a celebrity product. That's got the oomph that sports cards generally have. And we've found a way to do that. The market needs something to keep it fresh. And that's how we identify our targets.
1: So how, so there's a lot of hows because not often we get to speak to someone like you. And so how does, how do you like, do you deal with players? Do you deal with player associations? Like, how do you say, I want to go sign this player and do cards around them? Or well, most, this celebrity and do this card? Like, how does that all sure. work?
2: Most of our deals are player licensed deals. We okay. don't have relationships with the leagues, nor Is the that players. Normal the within the industry. Like well, no, most of the time you see the big company in each every league has gone exclusive. So every league has their one company they work with and they license their players as a group. But what we see as an opportunity again, is to take advantage of the fact that all the other companies steer clear if they can't get a license. So there's relatively no competition in any of these sports now. So it provides a great opportunity for us to swoop in and to say, we're gonna be number two in hockey and football, number three in baseball, We're not in basketball currently, but we've created a whole category called multi-sport, or we've taken what people did in the early 1990s, and we've done it exceptionally well. We're number one in multi-sport. We're number one in celebrity-driven products. We're number one in packaged memorabilia, putting jerseys and helmets in box. I mean, we found places where we can be number one or two. And doing that is doing deals with individual players, getting back to your question. Sometimes it's through the agents. A lot of times it's through the agents. Occasionally we have relationships with players. Or a player, we've had players come to us. I've had celebrities come to me and say, Brian, I really want to be on a card. You know, I had one time when we used to make poker trading cards. I went up to Andy Block, who was a great player. And Andy was like, I said, hey, what's going on? How you playing? He said, why am I not on one of your cards? And I said, well, <laughs> oh, you know, I picked my players, and you were kind of on the line. He goes, I'll do it for free. Just send me stickers to sign, I'll sign them. I want to be on the cards. I mean, you know, that. Lee Watkinson, I mean, some of the poker players. So we have people sometimes that are like, I just want to be on a card, really. You know, it's yep. like of card.
1: And then are athletes or 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 celebrities exclusive to to a card manufacturer there or?
2: Athletes, there are athletes that have exclusive arrangements. Um, we're not big fans of that because again, I'm going to cry competition from the mountaintops in, a, in, in an industry that's growing more and more sophisticated like ours. You run a great risk when there's no competing products, there's no alternative. It's, it begs for abuse, for the collector to get harmed. And as a former collector, I actually care about that, most don't, but you know, I think that's why I think it's so critical to try to avoid those. And there's relatively few of them. It, it happens the most in hockey and some in basketball, but no one else tries to make basketball, so it's really not a big issue. But you look at like, Upper Deck having Michael Jordan and LeBron James allegedly under exclusive. I don't know if I, I heard, they say they do, so I assume they do. But, like, that harms the current products from Panini. Those products, they're still doing great. But can you imagine if they had Jordan and LeBron in them? So right. that that's an example of where an exclusive deal really harms the consumer because he's forced to buy a product that, you know, he may not want to buy, but it's the only way to get those two players. So it's not ideal for the collector, and we, we are strongly against it. We've had exclusives before, but we don't like it. We don't right. like it. And if we do it, it's only because someone else signs another player exclusive and we need one to, to hone down our product. But we prefer a world with none.
1: So let's say I'm I'm an athlete at some college and I'm coming up into baseball. What is the type of deal? Of course, it'd be a great deal. But what would be the kind of deal that would be, you know, that card manufacturers offer? Like, how? I mean,
2: like, yeah, we do. we do auto, Most of our deals focus around autographs. Okay. And we do a certain amount of autographs at a certain price for a certain term. You know, okay. I mean, Panini's is a little different because a lot of their deals probably go through the licensing agencies where they run it through NFLPA, for example, or whatever. But our deals are with the players. So, again, we'll go to players. We'll offer them a deal. In most cases, our deals are very fair from a price standpoint. And we are the fastest payer in the world because we've learned by paying players quickly, they love us. Celebrities so- love us we pay so fast as fast as they get the stuff signed they got their money you know that's so amazing. that's our, we're well known in the business as one of the fastest payers
1: and is that like hey darren i want to buy like 1500 autographs from you it could be anything I mean,
2: we, we have players that we've done deals as little as 200 autographs and we've had guys i have one person under contract that i will do fifty thousand autographs with so it really can totally vary by the name you know by the sport it can be you know there might be legends that we have bigger deals with you know so we, the deals are always fluid it's so funny and again we have guys we pay as much as $500 an autograph 550 600 so when you're doing those deals you're taking less autographs at a time than when you're paying a guy $3 or $1 yep. or $2 yep. but it just depends i mean it's it's a wild card there's no cookie cutter answer to that question but again it usually is x amount of autographs at x price for x long x period of time and and the deals we've been we've been exceptionally good at negotiating and finding talent and locking in players to these deals
1: so the players get like super excited when brian calls them up and is like hey we want to put you on a card and we're going to buy you know two or 500 autographs from you or do you have to like call the agent and does
2: the agent like, yeah normally it's that? the agent Normally oh, it's the it. agent. and and i don't make those calls usually now i'll talk yeah, to the i agent. imagine you don't do it i know but like the football deals i do every football deal for Leafs because it's That's... a place where the stakes are so high that we have to execute with perfection and i and i take that on because it's important to me but the celebrities i've actually emailed celebrities cold call them and they like do deals with me and so like i mean i've done autograph deals with people that i that i love you know and so it's 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 kind of cool there because occasionally i'll get to actually deal with a celebrity and negotiating it but most of the time it's like their buddy or their agent or someone does the deal and then I get to just revel in the fruits of the labor you know but uh, but yeah i think a lot of people love getting our calls but there are some celebrities that have turned us down for years they just won't do it you know we have one player we're trying to work with now we have a deal but he can't sign stickers Hmm. but he only wants that but he must have all his cards signed by the end of the year we can't make cards fast enough so we're going to lose a deal with a huge athlete because he can't sign stickers and he won't wait till next year to sign the cards it happens you know
1: yeah So he wants to do the on-card auto. So with that, so you've been in the industry for a while. You've been at various parts of the industry. You know, give us a little bit of a history lesson of, you know, how the sports card contracts have changed over the years or not. I mean,
2: I'll tell you the one that doesn't involve me is the licensing deals. In 1991, when Wildcard had an NFL license, they were a small startup in Ohio that really was a fly-by-night kind of organization. Their license cost $250,000. That's what the guarantee was. Wow. Today, the guarantees are tens of millions. Yeah. So we're like in a completely different world, you know?
1: Yeah, we're we're exponentially larger at this point. So the stakes are much higher.
2: Much, 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 much higher.
1: So clearly, you know, there's a lot that goes into selecting sports, selecting athletes, et cetera. But then there's the whole component of, all right, let's get creative and create the card. How does that process like, I imagine that's like a fascinating process. Like how does one go about designing a car? I don't even know where to start.
2: We have a team and the first part is we have to come up with a vision for what is this product's identity, because that's been an issue for a long time. It's just making something you can just make something, but it needs to feel cohesive and just like when we decide to enter a business and we're very deliberate about that, everything we do needs to have a reason and so When we make a product, there has to be a reason and a theming and a a why to why we make that product. Then we say, okay, within the scope of the why we're making this product, if that's the tree trunk, what are the branches? And we think about what are those themes that stem off of this big theme? And we have product development, one or two people that are extraordinary, who are able to sit there and say, what if I could redo the draft boards from the last 20 NFL drafts and forget how they went? Go back and look at them now and make cards that feature memorabilia of the guys we would have be the top five picks in the draft if it happened today. That's cool. Because so often, Tom Brady going in the fifth round, he would be number one on your 2000 draft board, obviously now. So it's kind of cool to look back. But I would never have thought of – that wouldn't have been me. That was one of my guys. But I would never have thought of how collectors might see that as a cool thing to revisit all these old drafts through trading cards and to think about how things might have been different had we done them over. You know, so again, they're just really, we have incredibly creative product development. But then we brief those things and then we tell our design team, here's what we want to get across. When 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 someone sees the card, we want them to feel this or think this or associate something with this. And it's those feelings that that take paper and ink and turn them into something that triggers a feeling in the consumer. Because as much energy and feeling as we put into the card, we hope that's the amount of energy that comes out of the card. Sometimes not so much, but we yeah. try. That's our goal is that as passionate as we are about trying to evoke an emotion or a feeling, we hope that it achieves that. And so we put a lot of thought into that. We put more thought than that into a lot of people. A lot of people, it's cookie cutter because they yeah. got to get yeah. stuff done. They have so many releases. They got to hustle. We try to be a little more thoughtful about that, and I think we've executed extremely well.
1: Do players ever get to see the cards before they come out? Like, do they get to see something before, you know, they sign uh, when they or? Sign,
2: when, when they sign on card, they do. But honestly, on card's happening less and less in the business because it doesn't make sense. Because you have to, to ship people. the cards,
1: right? Like you have to ship them or get the players to come them. to the office or?
2: Kids lose the cards, They and when they lose cards, we can't reprint a lot of them because of the technology. They can't be reprinted effectively or cost effectively so then we have big issues. Uh, redemption cards which we hate you know there's there's all these different things that happen when we don't execute and it's not our fault it's the player's fault but what we've learned over time is when we ask uh, a a highly touted football draft pick to sign in september in the middle of the season they laugh at us (laughs) so we need to try to get all our autographs done early before they get into the heat of battle stickers is the way that happens and i know people some people don't like stickers they don't. the stickers being a little adhesive that they sign and those get yeah. put on the card instead yep. of the player actually signing the card. But there are a lot of cards from the past, including some very valuable cards that are signed where the ink is fading off the card. 2009 Bowman Chrome Mike Trout is one of the most famous cards in the hobby now. The Superfractor sold for $3.3 million or $3.85 million, whatever it was. A lot of those Mike Trout's autograph is fading off the card because the pen they used wasn't good so you could spend a million dollars or 3 million dollars on a high end trout and the autograph might be gone in 10 years but yeah. if, guess what i see almost no stickers that the autograph has disappeared on so yeah, that's I see. an argument that's an argument for the sticker because trust me if you spend 3.85 million for trout and your autograph disappears you're not going to be happy and the think... other
1: argument i've heard too that i've that that has come across my my table which is you know some people avoid the on-card autos because the players may not handle the cards correctly and they may bend the edges or they may, you know, scuff them or drop them on the floor. Um, that, can happen, and- that
2: can happen for sure. And, and it gets even bigger. It's, it's also a function of with on-card with, with sticker autos, we have players that are deceased that we're still making autograph cards of
1: because you have a you library have, of stickers.
2: Gordie Howe, Howe died three years ago and we're still able to issue Gordie Howe autograph cards today. Whereas if it weren't stickers, there'd be no cards. The minute the guy dies, he'll never have another autograph. And it's, I, I, I'm not saying that's a, a great reason for doing it, but it's one of the few benefits It allows us to be creative posthumously for these people who are legends or larger than life when they were alive. It allows us to continue celebrating them through trading cards in a, in a value-driven way.
1: Yep. And I imagine, you know, all the stuff we're talking about, you know, the card designs over the years have become much more intense, uh, you know, much more involved, which on a relative basis probably drives up the cost of producing cards these days. Like like technology
2: technology is the biggest challenge because these technologies are expensive to print. There's not many card printing facilities. That's one place that in the growth of our industry, there has not been a ton of money invested in doing that better. And yep. so the cost that's what shot, has really shot the cost of that in raw goods. When the raw goods used in making cards are getting more expensive. Um, yeah, the
1: inputs. Yep.
2: The inputs are getting more expensive. And so and so we see that that is an issue for sure, but you know, that's everything has inflation to it. You can't be surprised right. when the costs go up to these things. That's nothing extraordinary there.
1: And do card companies own their own printing
2: facilities or do
1: they no, they I, lease? I don't or?
2: think any card company owns their own printing, even Panini, who's the biggest. They all farm out work. We all use a lot of the same places to make stuff. Yep. And you can imagine that creates a log jam when we're all cooking and business is booming. Everybody wants to print tons of product at the same time.
1: So I, I imagine if I'm a if, if 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 one could figure out who the printing facilities are, those are companies to go find right now because they're you know, jamming. Know the problem
2: is they the, the problem is they they're overflowing, they would never give up their business. they you know, that's a challenge. But I think that's one place that an opportunity if you wanted to come into this market. And, and find opportunities.
1: It's printing.
2: You know, I think I think there'd be a place where someone could open those kind of facilities. You'd be overflowing with business overnight. But there's a lot of learning that goes into that curve, and it's, it's a very steep learning curve.
1: So going back to sort of the design process, because I'm kind of stuck on this in the back of my head, I'm I'm kind of wondering, have you ever spent like a ton of time? Your team came up with this great design uh, or concept, uh, and then you guys you know, execute it and then all of a sudden you wake up and like another card company has a similar concept in market hitting around the same time?
2: Um, Not for designs as much because again, we try to find products with a brand identity and kind of keep those identities close with what we do. But I will tell you that there have been brand names where I had a Mm. product I was working on in my pocket and then Panini came out with a product with that exact name literally a month before I set out the order. Uh. And I, huh. I didn't trademark. I could have. I could have trademarked the names, but you'll go broke trademarking every name you ever bounce off as an idea. And so I lost a name that I really liked that they used, and it was a bummer. I probably could have made it and gone to court because it was a term that was descriptive. So I probably could have won on an IP basis. But we listen. We're all friendly as manufacturers. There's no reason to fight over over little stuff like that. So we came up with a new name and we did what we need to do, and it worked great. The product performed. But more, that's where we went really struggled the most. It's not yeah. the designs, we come up with creative designs all day. The, the names you can use, it's getting harder and harder to come up with names because you can imagine in 30 or 40 years, every name you can, you look at, you, what you do is you go to thesaurus and you look up a brand name, now you see other names that are like it. You almost can't open a thesaurus and find a word that hasn't been used on cards before. So it's like, <laughs> it's, so
1: it, true. it's
2: so creative. It's like, how many ways can you say? Flawless, superlative, excellence, you know, all these different things. They've all been eminence. They're all used. You can't come up with a name that's original hardly anymore. And that's a challenge. That's much harder. We're constantly, because, again, they're not all trademarked either. So we'll have so to true. actually go on eBay and search terms to see if any cards pop up or go into Beckett's database and see if any cards pop up with certain terms. That's much harder than design. Design is a, its not easy, but design is easier for us than being creative with nomenclature
1: absolutely absolutely so who like all cards for the most part are roughly the same size you know give or take i guess there's some new fancy books that have come out recently but like who decides on those standards like why are all cards relatively the same size
0: well
2: when you had 52 and 53 tops in those sets they were bigger you know before that 48 bowman 48 leaf we were smaller back then and the cards were smaller then what happened is i think honestly the bigger cards they were harder to keep in nice condition. The cards were an awkward size. And for whatever reason, I don't know why they changed this starting, I guess the first year they went to standard size cards was um, 55, you know, for, for tops anyway, 54 yeah. tops. No, 54 tops were standard size, I think. Yeah, that, it was in that era they changed the size of the cards. And what basically happens is I think once we got to that, like 57 tops where it's two and a half by three and a half, where they had done three or four years of two and a half by three and a half, that became the size. And once you get 10 or 15, 20 years, you're conditioning people. This is yeah. what a card is. And even today with booklets, and there are some cool booklets. We've made a few. Panini makes a ton. A Uppernet makes some. Tops makes some. Everyone makes these booklets and, things, and they allow you to have real estate that you don't have in a standard card. But there's still a large contingency that is conditioned in their head that 2.5 by 3.5 is a trading card. Yep. We've made cards that were 5 by 7 before, and 4 by 6 and other companies make 8 by 10 tr- It just never has the same cachet. People just don't think of them as cards, and they are cards. You yeah. have to be able to think out of the box, but they don't. You make a mini, the card sells for way less than a regular card, because it doesn't feel the same.
0: Absolutely. And so I
2: think that's a challenge, I and mean, it's just conditioned behavior. It's everywhere. It's not just trading cards. People have these preformed definitions of what something is. And it's hard to reinvent things that have had thirty years of seeding into people and and uh, and, and defining themselves to people. It's very hard to reinvent thirty years, forty years. Of right.
1: that. Absolutely, absolutely. So as as a as a consumer, I always wondered, you know, is there a science or is is it more of an art about how many cards come in a pack? Because I've noticed, like, when I'm going to buy cards these days, there's like four cards in a pack. And, you know, when I used to buy cards, there is a lot more like I bought some old 80s wax recently, and there are like 24 cards in the pack. Yeah. yeah and five, and now years. there's like four
2: <laughs> and like what's going on? Like what, what what There's a few pieces? First off, like when you're talking about Panini Prism, the cost to make the cards is way, way, way higher. If you put 15 cards in a pack, I mean, I think the packs have gotten bigger, but they would put less packs in a box. But a lot of it's just the cost to make the cards. But the other thing is we're trying as manufacturers, I think, to make sure there's demand for the base cards, because there was a time in 2000, let's say, seven, eight, nine, ten, 8, 9, where people would open boxes. They'd pull three cards out of the box and they'd leave every other card on the counter for the store owner to give to some kid. And that yep. wasn't the environment because why are we spending all this money on base cards? Which is why when we started Leaf, we never made base cards initially. We made the boxes all about the hits because we were like, why do we want to make a bunch of cards we were going to leave on the counter or throw away? That's a good point. Yep. Put that value into the content, autographs, for game use. And um, so that's where we put our focus. But I think all of us as manufacturers realize if we're going to use base cards, we want those to be collectible. And amazingly, with this recent rookie excitement in the industry the last five or 10 years, people are now buying base card rookies of all these players they either have the rc logo or of young prospects whatever and they are they're buying those base cards now as much as they're buying autographs and there's a very strong market having those cards professionally graded so now we realize base cards are important and if you put too many cards in a pack you really will start to dilute the value because the production will be stupid we'll be back to the 1990s where there was one player, Kevin Reimer, that played for the Rangers, and I had 50,091 Upper Deck Kevin Reimers. I bought him for like four cents. You know, <laughs> and so it's like, do we really want to get into penny stock, like cards or penny yeah. stocks, where the card costs two cents to three cents to make and it sells for four cents? Like, for real. So we want to prefer the value, and I think that's a piece of it, but we also want to hit price points that consumers can live with. And I think if we, if we get the cost out of whack because we put too much money into that piece of the puzzle, then I think we're harming consumers and not giving the value proposition that they need in order to see the same value that we see in our products.
1: Absolutely. So similar, you know, thinking about value and thinking about price points, you know, do, do card manufacturers also think about, you know, customer segments and creating packs or cards for certain segments, like, you know, entry level, mid-level, like high, like, you know, there's plenty of, you know, uh, uh, high-end cards out there. I think we all know many of which which those are, but you know, h- how much like product planning is there for you know the sports card space in, as it pertains to customer segments?
2: I would say that happens more with the licensors on a particular product to make multiple versions that suit all these categories. You know, they'll make a hobby product that goes to the hardcore contingency, the the higher dollar customer base. Then they'll make a retail product that goes to retail stores It sells by the pack for two or three dollars, whatever it is. Then they'll make a blaster box or so it's a $20 purchase point. Because they any combination of pricing and configurations will appeal to a different customer for a different reason. So their runs are so big, they focus on those kind of dynamics. For us, we only do that a few times a year, but what we try to do is make a product solely focused to a market. So we make packs, we think of every box as a pack, pretty much, if we don't have packs inside, which most of our products, a box is a pack so okay. we do make products for target and walmart that are 19.95 for a box but we have products that range from that up to our highest in products that are two thousand or three thousand dollars for a pack or a box so what we do is we try to take an item and this item is a it's for the seven hundred dollar price point customer so it's going to price out uh, two-thirds of the market on day one yep. but then we'll make another product that's a seventy dollar price point
1: and then 20
2: percent. 10% of the market. And then we'll make a 1995 which which surprisingly prices out 18% of the 80% of the market is being too cheap. Cuz 80% of the market doesn't want something that's so cheap. They want something more expensive. So it's it's finding ways to appeal to these customers in the proportion that they make up the industry's, you know, the industry's uh, customer mix. You know, we look at that customer mix and we say 80% of the customers want to spend $70 or more on a box. We know this, we know that they do because this is the hobby market. We know that right. 20% of the consumers are very casual fans and they want to buy something at retail for 20 or $30. Although demand is so strong now, all those boxes get bought the second day at the shelf. As a consumer, you can't even walk in the store and buy a box of cards anymore. It's impossible, which is unbelievable. It's-
1: you know? I've seen all the pictures on instagram and and That's I've tried crazy. to do it myself it's it's unbelievable the shelves at a Walmart or target these days it's it's kind of crazy so I got two more questions in the cards part of this thing one of which is and I, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners on the midlife crisis cards podcast are interested in these two um one of which is like how do we think about limiting fakes or replicas of cards like do you or is that even an issue like do you see people trying to replicate cards, um, it, or create fakes in the market.
2: It happens to every company. And I actually, I actually helped the police this on eBay because there are, if you look on eBay, people literally take a TOPS card and reprint it and yeah. sell it uh-huh. and they'll put RP in the title, like cleverly trying to say it's a reprint, but like a reprint will sell for hundreds of dollars. And it's like that customer did not know that it was not the real thing. It yes. looks like the real thing. it smells like it, but you know, so from that standpoint, um, I think yes, it happens a lot. I'm constantly looking at eBay because I'm constantly looking to see if there's things that are anomalies. Like someone took some of our Joe Burrow cards and reprinted them and put them on eBay, making people think they're real. And um, wow. I think that's a, that's an issue. So we're so I'm constantly in there. I'll notify eBay these are garbage. I'll send them a cease and desist, threaten to sue them into the ground, and usually. Um, I think normally that pretty much scares people off. We get, but it's like whack-a-mole. You find somebody who's reprinting Jordan rookies, you spank him with a cease and desist, and you threaten to sue his family into oblivion, he takes them off, and then some other guy in some other place pops up with him. Then you threaten that guy, and some other guy pops up with him. So it is a game of whack-a-mole. Educating consumers is an important part of that, and it's so simple. If something is priced incorrectly, the market's way more efficient than you give it credit. Michael Jordan rookies are never five dollars. They're not even yeah. $100. If you see that, something's wrong. You know, so and even sophisticated, even sophisticated copies where they copy a Joe Burrow autograph card. It's selling it for four ninety nine, but the last sell was three hundred. Probably not it, real. But people yeah. who are less educated, who don't realize that, might look. They may be the casual nineteen ninety nine box buyer who never pulls that $300 burrow because he doesn't buy the boxes that are expensive enough to have that. And so he doesn't even know what that looks like. He sees the one for 499 dollars He's like, finally, one I can afford. And you know, that's a problem. So it, it's a real problem in the industry, but I, I think the 80% that are really hardcore are able to suss that out simple. Even, even probably half of the 20% that are left can. And then it's our job as manufacturers and collectors jobs to report those things to eBay. When you see them, you can click a button there and report the item to eBay and said, that's a Fugazi. That's fake. You know, goodbye. Yeah.
1: yep. So the one I've wanted to ask is, you know, as a consumer of cards, if I open a pack fresh bunch of cards, not all of them are great A PSA 10. Correct. So like should manufacturers, uh, you know, what what's like the manufacturer stance
2: on that? Like, how do you think about that?
1: Like, if I open
2: a pack, policies. we have customer service policies in place for exactly this. We basically say that a card after a pack will have a minimum standard of blank, and it depends on the type of product. And we going into 2021, we're actually evolving one of those standards because our standards were too tough. We were too tough on ourselves for one set of cards or one group of kind of production. So I'll give you an idea. So cards that are metal or chrome or whatever you want to call it, prism, that technology, whatever you want to call that, um, that technology, we guarantee that a card is near meant to mint or better. At the end of the day, it's still paper. We can't yep. manage the cutting process to make sure everything's cut perfectly. It never will be. The machinery is not at that level of precision. And if it was, you couldn't afford the products. So realistically, we say if it's near meant to mint, that's good enough. And honestly, Until the last five or 10 years with grading, it always was good enough. It's only now with this microscope that everything's gotta be perfect. It's unbelievable. Now, if it's a big, thick memorabilia card or something, in the past, we've guaranteed near mint to mint, which is an eight. We're now lowering that to a near mint, which is a seven. Because when you have these big, thick memorabilia cards, when when they do a guillotine cut on them, it's impossible to get clean cuts on these big, thick cards. And so it's possible to get a 7.5 or an 8 on those cards. Look at any, any Panini has in on their cards when you pull up in a box of thousand dollars If the borders on the back are colored, you're going to have some touch-ups on it. But guess what, if you open a brand new 1971 Topps pack, never open, it's been in the pack for 50 years or 40, whatever it is now, 50 years, those cards have white on the edges and corners straight out of the pack. From 19, because it's paper. So that's an issue, obviously, and grading has made that amplified. But customers have gotten so caught up in this, everything's gotta be perfect. And it's amazing. I gotta say one thing, this is great. The other day a customer sent back a card. Yep. Said this is atrocious. How dare you put this in a pack of cards? It's ugly, it's a horrible grade. If I sent this in it'd get a five. Okay, as soon as someone says that, none of our new stuff's gonna grade a five, unless like it got stepped on by a player, or you got food on it or something, well, there's no way. Yeah, um, yeah. We get the card in, and our rule is if it's a high-dollar card, we will send it to Beckett and have them do a raw card review on the card. So that's not our opinion as an a, they're it. Actually, I like
1: that. Money. That's a nice, yeah.
2: It costs us a lot of money. We don't do it on cheap cards, but on better cards, and this was a more expensive card. So the card came back graded. This was a card the gentleman told me was a 5. I should be embarrassed, and I'm a disgrace to the industry for putting it in a pack. And it came back at Jim Mint 9.5. Wow. And guess what? That happens almost weekly. Someone returns a card because it's not nice enough, and then it comes back gem mint, not near mint, not near mint to mint, not mint, but gem mint. And I'm like, this is the problem. People are like, they're just going overboard. It's You unreal. know, they just, it's gotten crazy. And you know, the cards were not designed to look at with a 30 power loop. That's not how yeah. this is designed. The eye appeal of a card should be obtained with a natural eye, or as we get older, we got these things on with these things. Yeah. That's enough. Our glasses, absolutely. Glasses are better than the the, the naked eye, and yeah. naked eye appeal is what really matters. So it's gone way overboard. I got off topic a little bit, but it's just gone no, way no. up. With this, it, it's guess what? I appreciate when I was that. born, I was a nine, and I've grown into a seven. I mean, I'm not I'm not perfect, <laughs> but I came from a perfect place. So figure that out. You know, oh, and, and doing I'm not well. straight
1: out of the pack either. You know, so who oh, knows? Amazing. amazing. So, speak. You mentioned memorabilia. Let's let's jump to memorabilia. So, you know, lots of cards today have some form of memorabilia. Could be, you know, patches, pieces of a bat, part of the floor. Could be leather. I see sneaker patches now. You know, the list goes on. Um, is it hard to get access to that? Like, how how does one get access to the floor? Or like, how does one get access to like, you know?
2: We've never bought the whole Florida like a basketball stand. We did buy the entire court from the US Open tennis one year. That's but I mean amazing. that's cool. But like but I mean generally we're buying game used equipment from the players, whether it's uniforms, shorts, shoes, bats, cleats, gloves, whatever it is. And again, we we focus on the auction market for most of those items. But a lot mm-hmm. of runners come straight from players. You know, the key thing that we we encounter on a regular basis is it's getting harder and harder to buy some of these assets. So we, we try not to go because over. there's
1: more buyers in the market.
2: Well, and the companies, I mean, how many years can we make? I mean, it's not, Yogi Bear only played for so long, <laughs> you know, they didn't change yep. jerseys every game. See, now Mike Trout might wear 50 jerseys in a season because there's a there's a manufactured memorabilia marketplace. Now they know they need those things and that they're valuable. He may use 30 or 40 yep. bats in a year, you know, so it's not like the old days you know, when, when a guy would use one jersey all year, or maybe multiple years, he might use the same he might use the same glove for 10 years. And like gloves, a lot of guys still keep using, but the point being, there's only so many assets out there. And in time, these assets yeah. disappear. And when they disappear, you can't find them. We just don't make Shoeless Joe Jackson memorabilia cards anymore because there is no more memorabilia to buy. George Vezina, the great goalie in hockey, which we're the only company to ever make Vezina memorabilia cards. We have the only piece of Game War memorabilia that exists. There's never been another piece. The piece we are cutting up is all there is. So when that's gone, there will never be another memorabilia card. Of it. You know, Cyclone yep. Taylor, another huge name in hockey, same thing. So those assets are drying up over time, and it's getting harder and harder to buy them. But we focus in the auction market and look for items that have good provenance, proper tagging, show good use, not just... You know, someone taking a Pro Cut jersey and beating it around a little bit. You know, yeah, we're looking right. at the next level, and companies haven't always done that. There have been times where companies have been very loose in their standards back in the early 1990s, mid 1990s, whatever. But today, the companies have far too big an investment to take unnecessary chances. We're all pretty much being very, very careful what we're buying to use for our memorabilia cards. And have you ever had any
1: any issues around? Uh, Memorabilia being replaced on a card bef- as it's uh, in the secondary market. And so I was looking to buy a card once, and uh, a buddy pointed out before it was a high value ticket. And a buddy pointed out, he's like, I don't think that's the real patch. And that happens
2: a lot, not so much to us, but it does happen a lot, especially on some of these high end tops cards and high end like Michael Jordan. Because you can imagine, like a Michael Jordan, you know, some of these high end pieces, they're already 30K. If you got a piece with a piece of the tag or a bull's head, you know, it's 100K. The stakes are so big. But I think most of the grading companies have become very good at detecting alterations. And I do know that Beckett, for example, emails the company when they're not sure about a patch and says, we're suspicious of this patch. If you have an objection, let us know within 48 hours. Otherwise, we're going to assume you did it. Cause we're leaning toward the card does not look altered but if you didn't do this patch please tell us within 48 hours and we'll kill the auto you know we'll, we'll kick it and say it's been altered which is a great step i love hearing that that's a lot of care that's a lot of companies absolutely and we've gotten so, those emails and i and i know the pieces that we use on cars the kind of pieces you know we know kind of how we can tell and then a lot of times there's like inside the little patch window, you'll see a little, a little creasing and little, where they tried to alter it. You can't perfectly alter. If you really look carefully, you'll catch the alteration most of the time.
1: Absolutely. But again, it
2: looks like that when they buy, they're buying on eBay, they see a little picture. They don't know any better.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. Amen, and would,
2: amen. And I would argue for graded cards on these patches. There's still some cards that are graded that have bad patches in them, it happens. But it's only because the grading company reached out and the company didn't say anything in some cases. Or they right. can't see the alterations, or they can't say it's altered if they don't see an alteration. That's Ideally, true. I wish there was a way to be hundred percent foolproof. But honest honestly, this sounds right, honestly, dishonesty will always find a way to seep into anything pure and good. And you just have to be an educated consumer. And if you're not, get help. And we live Absolutely. in a world you put a picture on Twitter, tons of people will comment on it if you tag the right people. Help is really easy to find these Facebook communities. So easy to get help. And there's a lot of smart people in these groups who can really help you. These are resources that are not tapped enough, I don't think, for purchases that people like you might consider to be important, but you're just not sure.
1: Totally. Totally. All right. You've been amazing, Brian. Thank you for joining us. I got one last question before I, I let you go for the evening. As we think about 2021, what should everyone be excited about in the card market? Like what, t- what, 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 I mean, if, if you're at liberty to talk about a trend or something that you could see happening in
2: 2021. Um, I would say, and this, this is not, this may not be the answer you're looking for, but I will say the amount of money coming into this industry is staggering. I mean, Collectors Universe, PSA just got sold for $700 yeah. million. Final price is probably going to be a little higher. That's the starting kind of number. They're already setting the stage for expecting more. But at seven to $800 million, that's a headline grabber. And it's the first of what I think will be 10 to 20 deals in 2021. I think you're going to see consolidation in our business, not us buying each other, but outside money coming in saying, you guys have been thinking too small for too long. And they see opportunities that when they talk to me about leave, I'm like, holy cow, I never thought about that being our road to a multiple expansion and to becoming eight or 10 times the size we are. These guys have visions that I can't even, I'm barely getting my arm around them now when they share the vision. And so I think this will this will be so beneficial to the consumer in the long term because when this big money comes into this industry, they're going to want to take this thing to the next level to make it a level of excitement where opening packs could become an ESPN 7, hopefully 2 someday activity. Where you're watching. Absolutely. Can you imagine watching ESPN 2 and watching guys open packs that are 5,000 or 10,000 a pack? It's amazing. There's an opportunity there. There's an opportunity for case breaks to become something where Giannis Giannis is on there doing the basketball break on on a cable channel. Can you imagine? I mean, this could be taken to a whole new level and it's going to take big vision from guys that have scaled businesses. And I think seeing the PSA transaction, that proves what I've known is coming. And I think the consumer can be excited about having fresh blood coming in ready to say, we wanna take this to a whole new level. And like we said, our job is to keep things fresh and engaging on a micro level with LEAF, but they're looking at it from a big picture to keep people engaged, excited, and really, really loving what we're doing here. And I think collectors should be like salivating at what this could mean. It's a very exciting time. Amazing. I, I, that, that
1: is probably the best closing I've heard so far. I mean, that's, that's an amazing vision. I see it on my, you know, day to day. Uh, and I, 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 I wouldn't bet against that. I, I think that's a, that's a good bet. Um, but Brian, you've been amazing. I want to thank you and leaf and for joining us here on the midlife crisis cards podcast. And, uh, Hopefully, we can talk to you at some point in mid 2021 and and see what's uh, what's happening out there. You never know. I think I mean, there'll be some updates.
2: I think we'll have some updates, and and hopefully, my my vision of evolution is what I believe it is. It'll be fun to see. And again, thanks for having me. And I hope I hope it's been educational for people to kind of see a little bit behind the curtain because it's not something that's easy to see, and it's not something that is usually out in the open. But you know, to the extent that we can let people know that there is passion that goes into it. And it's not just a money-making enterprise. There is a passion and a love for this. And we hope that they get out of it half of what we put into it.
1: Amazing. Absolutely. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate your time today.
2: Thanks, Darren. Appreciate you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Midlife Crisis Cards podcast. We had a ton of fun putting this episode together. And we want to thank you for listening. We want to hear from you. So please don't be a stranger. You can reach Darren at At Midlife Crisis Cards on Instagram or at dherman76 on Twitter. If you want to stop by and check out our collection of cards, listen to other podcasts, or have fun configuring our new product, the Cardboard Box, a set of hand-curated sports cards delivered to your door, come visit midlifecrisiscards.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay classy, and let's go Knicks.